Welcome to the Sunday Morning Meeting Podcast by Kingdom Faith Yorkshire. Today's message is by Neil Douglas. Thank you, Paul, for um, inviting me this morning. We are one church in Scarborough. We are... My heart beats for kingdom and that we live kingdom of God. Um, It doesn't matter what flavour we are. And I value the friendship of Paul and the welcome to Scarborough that we've got. We've been here for three years. Gosh, three years in October. Flippin' heck. Time flies. Um, Anyway, thank you. Uh, We we were talking six months ago, I think, when Paul invited me, and and my heart just burdened with a message I wanted to bring. Um, And it's, it's around... I spent a lot of years in churches um, before I came into ministry. Um, children grew up and I listened to preacher after preacher telling us that we could heal the sick and cast out demons. Um, and if God leads you, sometimes even raise the dead. And I, I, can't, I was always inspired by those messages. But there was always a bit of me that went, can I really do that? And then I'd read the stories of Jesus in the Bible um, doing it. And I, well, yeah, but... And, and my heart for the message this morning is that Um, we get right thinking about that promise of Jesus that we will do that, about that command of Jesus to do it. It may be that it's completely sorted in your head. If so, have a nice nap for the next half hour or so. (laughs) But if not, I pray that um, as we explore what Scripture says, as we look at the truth, the lies of the enemy get cut off. Because when we have wrong thinking about that uh, promise of Jesus and I'm going to read the promise in a second when we have wrong thinking about that it disempowers us we believe that we cannot heal people I mean praise God for Jim's testimony <laughs> yeah. God heals radically let me um, read the passage I want to read it's, G- it's John 14 and it, puts, it raises the stakes it's verses 11 and 12 it raises the stakes because it says Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. <laughs> then he says this Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and this is where the stakes go up, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. He's encouraging us to believe that. I find that passage mind-blowing. I mean, if you just have to read the New Testament, the Gospels, the the historical accounts of what Jesus did, and he kind of wanders around and he heals the sick and he casts out demons. On a bad day, he could only do a few miracles (laughs) and heal some sick. I mean, that would be a great day for any one of us, for me, certainly. Now, there are those who argue that this passage mean, doesn't talk about miracles, that Jesus, when he says you'll do greater than things than these, is not talking about miracles. They argue that, well, you'll feed more people. I mean, he fed 5,000, well, probably 15,000, because they weren't counting the men. You know, and, and, and when he says you'll do greater things, well, you know, through our food banks, we're feeding millions. And people try and argue for that for the passage, but it's not the plain meaning of the passage. Jesus is talking about his unity with the Father and the signs and wonders that he does demonstrate that unity. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, you are going to do greater things than these. So, 
How can that be? How is it that we can rest assured that we can do what Jesus did and that we can do greater things? And to tackle that question, I want to just look at three keys that will unlock it. I want to go back to the beginning and the gospel. What was Jesus' gospel? It's possibly a trick question because when you ask that, people talk about, um, oh, Jesus died on the cross and blah, blah. And yeah, there's a gospel message there. But Jesus is actually recorded declaring the gospel in Mark 1. In Mark 1, 14. Jesus, is it 14? Yes. Uh, Mark, never rely on your memory when you're at the front. Jesus has been filled with um, uh, the Spirit. He's gone into the desert. He's been tested. And when he comes out, he proclaims the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near. That was Jesus' gospel. The good news. The kingdom of God has come near. And then he says... Therefore, repent and believe. Change your thinking, change your behavior, because the kingdom of God has come near to you. But why did Jesus have to say the kingdom of God has come near? I mean, it's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? Where was the kingdom of God before? Why wasn't it? What's Je- is Jesus giving news? Or is he just saying the obvious, like these lights are bright? Well, he's giving news. There's a reason that he had to say the kingdom of God has come near. And we find that reason if we go back to Genesis. Genesis 1, 26 tells us that originally the idea of the kingdom of God being on earth wasn't new. But as we track through, we find that that God's kingdom rule gets broken. Let's remind ourselves. We all know this. Genesis 1, 26 says, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. In other words, we were created in God's likeness so that we would rule over the earth on his behalf, as his ambassadors. God set Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And this is where it all goes wrong. We know the story. You can eat whatever you like, but there is one tree in the middle that you must not eat from. If you love me, you won't eat from that tree. So rule over all of this, farm it, eat from it, but this, this one bit I'm reserving. You know, that, that my way says don't touch it. And what do humans do? They go and they touch that. And they reject God's rule in their lives. Now, you might be sitting there going, I don't believe that there was an original Adam and Eve, and I don't believe there was a a Garden of Eden. Or you might be sitting there going, I really believe it. I'm not here to debate that today. But the message behind the passage is clear. If you love God, you'll do what he says. If you love God, you'll live under his rule. And the first humans rejected God's rule. We pushed the kingdom away. We rejected it. So when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God has come near, he's bringing it back because humans had pushed the kingdom away right at the beginning. We don't want to live under God's rule. It brought terrible consequences. It put us under God's curse. We see the problems today, warfare, pain, unproductive soil, sickness, broken relationships, climate warming, a whole load of stuff is a result of our sin. And God didn't leave it there between, uh, I may as well fill in the bit of history, God didn't leave it there between Genesis and Jesus. He called a people to himself, a holy people, the Israelites. He asked them to be his priests, to mediate God's presence on earth. 
Humans had pushed God away, so he needed a mediator. He wanted a mediator. Mediate his presence on earth. He established a covenant with the Israelites. He made them that priestly people. But their eventual total failure to obey him demonstrates that in our own power and in our own strength, we cannot live God's rule on earth. He showed that we needed a savior. And Jesus, as we have been singing so loudly this morning, is that savior. He came and reestablished God's kingdom amongst us. It was there originally, but we pushed it away. And the Israelites, if you read through the first two thirds of this book, demonstrate clearly that actually we can't handle God's kingdom in our own strength. So it needs to come back. It needed to be brought back by Jesus. Jesus announced the good news at the beginning of his ministry. The kingdom of God has come near. Therefore, change your thinking. Change your behavior. Enter into the kingdom of God. Salvation is that technical word we use for what we receive when we accept Jesus. We enter back into God's kingdom. God's kingdom, this is going to sound obvious, but God's kingdom is where God's rule is. Think about the queen. She doesn't rule in France. She rules in the United Kingdom. God's rule is where God's kingdom is present. And that is in us. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your saviour, if you said yes to God, I imagine most of you have this morning, you carry God's kingdom in you. God's rule is where God's kingdom is present, and that is in his people. There will come a day, and we've been singing, I think, about it. I can't remember all the songs we sung, but when God's presence will fully return and God's kingdom rule will be fully established on the earth. But for now, it's established in his people. I might get stoned for this next one. You're not Yorkshire people. You're not English. You're not British. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's really hard for me. I know my accent's wrong. I'm Scottish. And having, having to say I'm not Scottish, I'm part of God's kingdom, I mean, it's a better privilege, but I defend being Scottish to the hilt. But we're not. We carry God's kingdom in us. The, the Queen's ambassador in France isn't French. He's British. He's just living in a foreign country. And we are ambassadors of God's kingdom in a foreign country. Scarborough, North Yorkshire, England, the United Kingdom. But we don't carry that kingdom. We don't live in that kingdom. We're not identified as God's people for our own benefit, just like the Israelites weren't. Jesus taught his first disciples to minister as he did. He told them to pass it on to others. What did he do? He healed the sick, he cast out demons, he raised the dead, and he told them the kingdom of God has come near, and he called them to repent and believe. And that's the task he gave us. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And in kind of one of those little ironic loops, it brings us back to where we started this morning. Jesus did all that. He commanded his disciples to do it. So how can we do it? Well, we've seen the first key. There's three keys. The first key, we carry God's kingdom with us. We are members of God's kingdom. Your identity is uh, Godish, I suppose. What would be the word? I mean, we're British. If you're part of God's kingdom, Godish, that doesn't sound right, does it? But whatever that holy nation is, that's, that's where we live. So that's the first key. Understanding that we carry God's kingdom. We are part of God's kingdom. Our national identity is God's. 
I suppose we call it Christian. That would be the right word, wouldn't it? So the second key is to understand something about Jesus. And he came as a human. That's what we need to understand. But at the risk of being stoned, let me just step back a bit and affirm something. Jesus is divinity. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Jesus will forever be God. The Old Testament and the New Testament are abundantly clear. We've been singing it loudly. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. If, if, if you're a Doctor Who fan and you could jump into the TARDIS and go back 2,000 years and arrive in the Middle East and wander around, if you bumped into Jesus and shook his hand, you would be shaking hands with the very person of God. I want to be absolutely clear about that. Jesus himself recognised he was God. Um, we've got all the wonderful I am sayings, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, the life, and so on. The Hebrew word Yahweh means I am who I am. The name of God, the holy name of God, that the Israelites didn't dare say was God's name is I am. It's wonderful, isn't it? And he just is. That just says everything about God. Jesus identified himself. He said before Abraham was born, I am. And he was... Some people question, was he saying that he was God? Well, yes, he was, because look at the response of the teachers of the law when they hear Jesus saying that. They get angry. They want to kill him. They recognize that he's saying he is God. At the end, Matthew records the high priest saying to Jesus, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. To which Jesus replies, yes, it is as you say. So Jesus knew he was God. So if Jesus was and is the one true God... And if God commands leprosy to go, blind eyes to be opened, the dead to be raised, what's going to happen? Well, leprosy will go, blind eyes will be opened, and the dead will be raised. It's not really a challenge for God. But that, and this is the crucial point, that isn't what happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus was truly human when he was on earth. Paul writes in Philippians that Jesus made himself nothing and took the nature of a servant. He was made human, in other words. John's gospel opens with the word became flesh. Scripture presents Jesus as both truly human and truly divine. It's a bit of a difficult question. How can he be 100% God and 100% human at the same time? That's one of those paradoxes in the Bible. But... A lot of scripture takes a lot of effort to demonstrate that Jesus on earth was human. We often fudge it. We think of Jesus as using his divine nature whilst he was here. Um, there's a heresy in the church that was Jesus kind of just looked human when in fact he was God. That is a heresy. Jesus was 100% flesh and blood humanity as we were. And there's a reason why that had to be the case. I want to demonstrate two things on this. First, there's a reason that had to be the case. And second, even if you haven't believed what I've just said, ponder the examples of why it's demonstrated through Scripture. So the first thing is, God doesn't change his mind. Jesus had to come as a human because God doesn't change his mind. Remember the passage from Genesis I read at the beginning. From the very beginning, in Genesis 1.26, God created humans to rule over the earth. He gave power and authority to humans to do it. David wondered at this in Psalm 8. He said, what are humans that you're mindful of them? You make them ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet on earth. 
The sin of Adam and Eve didn't change it. 1 Samuel 15 tells us, he who is the glory of Israel, in other words, God, does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human that he should change his mind. Romans 11.29, God's calls and gifts are irrevocable, yes. If we turn to the end of the book, read the last chapter of Revelation. Who is it that's ruling over the earth? Humans. You can check that one at lunchtime. Humans will always rule over the earth. God set us on earth to rule over it. He's left us to rule over it. And at the end of Revelation, we're ruling over it. The question is, who are we doing it for? God or for Satan? That's why after the fall, God continued to work through human beings, the Israelites. So, if God has set us on earth... To rule over the earth, how can God break his covenant with himself and intervene and save us? If he comes as God, he's just broken his um, covenant that we should rule over the earth on his behalf. See that? So he had to come as human. Psalm 115 verse 16 says, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. Jesus emptied himself of his divine advantages. Philippians 2 is an amazing passage. He emptied himself of his divine advantages and came as a human. The word became flesh. Now that's probably striking you as odd because we don't think of Jesus that way. But for 33 years, Jesus took humanity as his nature. How can we be sure? Well, apart from the testimony of scripture, it says son of David, the son of man is not coined accidentally. It means other things as well, but it's not coined accidentally. There are attributes of God that we can consider and consider whether Jesus had them. So God, we know, is omnipresent. It's a technical word. What does it mean? It means that God fills all of space and all of time at one time. God is everywhere. If I was to leave the building and go to the other side of the planet, and God would be with me, but he would also be here with you. How many times in Scripture do we see Jesus recorded as being in many places at once? during his earthly ministry. Well, it's zero. It didn't happen. God, Jesus was not capable of being in many places at once when he ministered on earth as a human. We say that God is omnipotent, all-powerful. There's nothing that God cannot do. Oh, it's a song line, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, for example, God neither sleeps nor slumbers. Scripture tells us that. Where do we find Jesus in the boat in the storm whilst the disciples are panicking? Sleeping. Scripture records times of Jesus sleeping. But God doesn't need to sleep or slumber. Jesus wasn't all-powerful. He couldn't just keep going day after day. He needed to rest. Humans need to rest. Jesus was similarly limited, I already mentioned. For example, in his hometown, because of their lack of faith, he couldn't do any miracles except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I've already joked that would be a good day for me. But that was a bad day for Jesus. Luke records elsewhere in his gospel an occasion that the power of God was with Jesus to heal people. Yeah. Now, why would you say on an occasion the power of God was with Jesus to heal people? If it was permanently with him, you wouldn't note there was an occasion, would you? That contemplates that there were times that the power of God wasn't with Jesus to heal people. The point is not that Jesus didn't have the ability to use the power of God, but that Jesus could only heal as God led him to heal. 
The final one is God is omniscient. It's not the final one. I've got another one, actually. The final one is God is omniscient. But maybe you've got this already. Omniscient means all-knowing. God knows everything. There are examples in Scripture, plenty of examples in Scripture, where we see Jesus learning something for the first time. Lazarus. Someone came and told him that Lazarus had died. Why would they need to come and tell him if he knew that? The woman with the hemorrhage touched him and was healed. And we record, we see the passage where Jesus turns around and says, who healed me? It's not a, who, he, who, so who touched me? It's not a, who touched me, staring at her. Um, sorry, Paul. It's easier to stare at the leader. It's not like that at all. Read the passage. You can get the sense of it. Who touched me? Come on. So power's gone out from me. Who has been healed? And the disciples are like, oh, don't be silly. There's all these people around. Any one of them could have touched you. And Jesus is looking for that response, but he doesn't know who it was. Oh, I don't believe he knows who it was. The man at the pool in Bethsaida, with the passage is written, when Jesus learned that he had been there for a long time. Yeah? So just some simple examples. The, the final one I want to use as an example. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted. Jesus' ministry starts where? In the desert. Being what? Tempted. If Jesus was operating in his divine nature, nothing happened in the desert. Because God cannot be tempted. The only way Jesus could be tempted is if he was human in the desert. Notice during the temptation, Satan flaunts him, that if Jesus will just bow down and worship him, he'll give him all the kingdoms of the earth. Flaunts him with what it is that he's coming to do. It's not a temptation if it's not possible. If I was to pop to the toilet now and say, please don't steal my phone, there's no temptation there because... Well, you could steal my Bible, but you couldn't steal my phone. It only becomes a temptation if I was to do that. Now there's an opportunity to get my phone, yeah? And somebody's already on his feet. Well done, sir. <laughs> but it's an old version of an iPhone, so it wouldn't do you much good. Do you get the point? It's only a temptation if it's real. So Satan offering the kingdoms of earth to Jesus is only a temptation for Jesus if it's Satan's to give. And it is, because we gave power on earth to Satan. That's why Jesus had to come and say the kingdom of God has come near because it's Satan's kingdom at the moment. You're either ruling the earth for Satan or you're ruling the earth for God. So is it clear? God is omnipresent. Jesus wasn't. God is omnipotent. Jesus wasn't. God is omniscient. Jesus wasn't. God can't be tempted. Jesus was. So there's two keys to the puzzle. For those of you accounting time, we're two-thirds of the way through. The first key of the puzzle is we carry the kingdom of God with us. We have that kingdom of God with us. The second key of the puzzle is Jesus ministered as a human. Now, I think you're all humans. I don't know. I suspect you are. So Jesus didn't have some advantage over you. Yeah? He carried the kingdom. He brought the kingdom near. And he ministered as a human. He had no unfair advantage over you. And the last question I'm not going to spend as long on because I think we all know the answer. I'm just going to ask the question, how did Jesus do his ministry? It is fundamentally important to understand that. Jesus' ministry is easily summed up in his reply to John's disciples. Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. His ministry was the fulfillment of the prayer he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. In God's future kingdom, there are no sick, no hungry, no poor, no broken relationships, no demonized people. 
Jesus' ministry, the ministry he has entrusted to us, is to bring the dynamic reality of God's future kingdom onto earth now. So that we become part of the prayer, answer to the prayer, your will be done. So the key to this is to understand how Jesus did all that 2,000 years ago on earth. I've banged on about his humanity, but it's incredibly important that we don't think Jesus did all that because he was God. It's incredibly important we understand that because if we think Jesus had an unfair advantage, then when you go to pray for somebody, you're going to go, oh, this might not work because I'm not God. No, Jesus, Jesus ministered as God. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God. In that prophecy is our answer, which those of you who like to read ahead or guess ahead will have got to. Jesus ministered in the power of the spirit. The Gospels clearly record Jesus did no miracles until after his baptism. What happened at his baptism? The the Spirit came down, rested on him. Jesus left the desert in the power of the Spirit. And Luke records the following, just after he leaves the desert. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. The Spirit of the Lord is on Jesus Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus ministered as a human being in the power of the Spirit, that same Spirit that God fills you and me with today. Jesus did what he did as a human being. I'm just going to say it again. This is... The reason I'm saying this again is I'm incredibly thick. It took me a long time to get this. And maybe you're all much brighter and you're just saying we've got it. But let me just say it again. If you're harboring a belief that Jesus did what he did because of his divinity, then his promise that you'll do what he did and do even greater things is just a harsh, cruel taunt. It would be totally unfair. And one thing we know, we've declared endlessly this morning, is God is not unfair. In that locked room, after his resurrection, with the disciples gathered there in fear, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He passed on that which we need, the power of the Spirit. It's a fulfillment of a promise that he would send the Holy Spirit. For three or four years, he trained his disciples, sending them out. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. And he promised them power to carry on doing that when he left. And he sent them that power. And he said, make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, heal the sick, cast out demons, even sometimes raise the dead, and proclaim the kingdom of God has come near. And invite people to repent and believe, to change their thinking and to change their behavior and to enter into that kingdom. I should, for completeness, say that the kingdom of God is made visible in other ways, not just in the miraculous. It's made visible through our holy lives, our humility, the way we serve others, striving for justice, caring for the environment, suffering for truth, 
generous giving, loving our neighbors, and so on. But surely one of the most loving ways that we can demonstrate the kingdom of God is to bring the future reality, the, the dynamic reality of God's future kingdom into their lives now and heal their bodies and get rid of the demons in their lives. So to summarize, for us, healing the sick, casting out demons, maybe even raising the dead, oh, I would love to have that glorious <laughs> miracle, but it's not an impossible task and it's not out of reach. It is fully realizable by each and every one of us who is a Christian. Amen. We've seen the puzzle pieces fit together. Jesus brought the kingdom of God near. We have stepped into that kingdom. We have become Christians, a holy nation, citizens of God's kingdom when we accepted Jesus. The second piece of the puzzle. Jesus didn't have an unfair advantage of well, I'm just going to pretend to be human and I'll, I'll be God as I do stuff. No, he had to come as a human. He came as a human. He ministered as a human. For 33 years, Jesus gave up being divine in order to be human on earth. Although, as I said, if you'd met him, you were meeting God. He still, had, he still had his identity, but he didn't minister out of divinity. He ministered purely out of his humanity. And the third piece of the puzzle the spirit that Jesus was anointed with, that he was given, that he was baptized in, in order to do all of that, is the same spirit that we have got. Amen. Amen. Power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. Amen. The only obstacles in our way are unbelief and lack of faith. And letting bad thinking allow the enemy to breathe lies into our ears that say that you can't do this. We just need to repent of unbelief. We just need to allow God to set our thinking straight and let him use us as he will and trust him for the outcome. Not let our eyes be deceived, not worry about what goes on, just go out and in faith do what he's told us to do. And it's not just heal the sick and walk away. It's heal the sick and tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to them. It's powerful stuff. It's within our reach. God longs for us to get on and do it. And doing so reveals God's glory on earth and extends his kingdom further as others change their thinking and behavior and accept Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Neil. So which ones of you are going to do greater things than God? Yeah, yeah, just about every hand up. How many of you are going to do greater things than Jesus did? Are you? Are you? Are you? Yeah, you are, because Jesus said you will. Just let, let's just finish with where, where, where Neil started then. Let's read that, 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 uh, that, that verse that he read, or a couple of verses. I'll go back to verse 12 in John 14. I tell you the truth, anyone, anyone, okay, you are not disqualified. If you think you're disqualified, you're just proud and you think you're bigger than God. <laughs> I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Even greater things than these. Even greater things than these. Come on. 
This was a great word. And Jesus didn't do it because he was God. He did it because he was human. Okay. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. God wants to be glorified. He's glorified when the power of God touches, changes, revitalizes, is that a word? People's lives. That's when God gets the glory. When there's fruit, when people get saved, when people get healed, when families are restored, when marriages uh, are restored and people are walking together, when churches are walking together in love and harmony and peace, God gets the glory. That's the motivation. Sometimes there's two wrong motivations for miracle. One, more easy to, easier to spot. I want to do miracles because it's exciting and, and it'll be exciting for me. Forget it. Two, I want to do miracles because I want that person to be healed. That's close. Sounds better. But what it actually says is so that the Father gets the glory. We want to see the miraculous of God so that God gets the glory. Amen? Because he wants to see people healed, but it goes to him, the glory, not to the person praying, but to God. That's why I love stories like Jim's. Nobody prayed for him. Nobody can take credit. Nobody can say, oh, I laid hands on him and he was healed. No, nobody did. Just Jesus. Amen. And look at the next verse after this, Neil. It's just what you said about Adam and Eve. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Jesus has gone full circle, back to Adam and Eve. If you love me, you will obey what I command. But in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't obey him. But now he says, if you love me, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Then you will obey him. This is not a word of correction. This is a word of encouragement. He's not saying, well, you know, you look at all the times you've disobeyed me and that proves you don't love me, so you're a failure, so just look a little bit dejected, please. He's saying, if you love me, you will do it. What has he just said? Greater things. If you love me, you will do it. It's not hard, he says. I'm showing you the way. Amen? If you're doing first encounters right now, the first memory verses, uh, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And uh, those who believe in him must come to him and believe that he exists. And he is... The, and he rewards those who seek him or he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him depending on what version you're living in in other words faith you have to come to God you have to believe that he exists to come to him but you come to God and he is the rewarder what is the reward? you will see what he's promised whatever you ask for in my name do you believe the word of God? do you believe you can work miracles? Do you believe you can lay hands on the sick and they will get well? Do you believe you can talk with people and the light bulb will go on and they will know the kingdom of God is here? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Then it's going to happen and it's going to be an exciting week. Who knows who you might see this week? Who's ready to pray for somebody this week and see miracles? Come on. This isn't for a time. This isn't next July. This is today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Lay hands on the sick. You say, well, sometimes they don't. So what? Carry on. Don't give up. Don't get disheartened. That's exactly what the enemy wants. 
think, no, Jesus said I love him, so I will see these things. He's going to reward my faith because faith really pleases him. I believe he exists. I've come to God and he's the rewarder of those that seek him. So I'm going to get rewarded by seeing the work of God happen in my life. You're going to have a good week. Oh, you're going to have a good week. Amen. Neil, Karen, it's been absolutely wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for coming. Have an absolutely fabulous week. Don't forget God Encounters restarted. So that's Thursday nights at half past seven. Uh, Enjoy house church. Enjoy life. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. For more information and resources by Kingdom Faith and for our other audio and video podcasts, please visit kingdomfaith.com forward slash Yorkshire.